Hey guys, how are we getting on? Welcome back to the JCC podcast for episode number seven. And this podcast, we're joined by Gary McGowan, also known as Skinny Gaz on social media. And this is a really, really good chat with myself and Gary. And we, we talked about the, the topic of exercise mechanics, running through um, what is exercise mechanics, resistance profiles, strength profiles, and complementary profiles, really. Um, we talk about passive and active ranges, machines analysis, what makes a good machine, and from a, a coaching perspective what Gary's picked up and what he'd advise to any aspiring coaches out there but the main thing from this one was was is exercise mechanics really really that applicable is it absolutely necessary so this is what we're going to dive into in the podcast hopefully you guys enjoy it and let's get the ball rolling hey guys welcome back to the JCC podcast for episode number seven and today we have a guest on Gary McGowan also known as Skinny Gaz how are you today Gaz? I'm fantastic. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. So for any of the listeners who don't know um, Gary, I'd love you to give a little bit of an introduction to yourself, um, how you got into fitness industry, your education, career, etc. And what, what, um, what started you to learn about exercise mechanics? Yeah, so um, I got into exercise like, you know, like many people um, in terms of just wanting to look a bit better, build a bit of muscle, that kind of thing. You know, I didn't really have a sporting background or anything like that. I suppose that's how a lot of people end up getting into the gym. But for me, I didn't really have a sporting background. It was just like I got into to exercise, skip forward a couple of years, that exercise interest kind of translated over into me wanting to study it a bit more. So I went on to study exercise science. Initially, I did a year of exercise science and then I decided you know what, I'm interested enough in this stuff that I'm probably going to go ahead and study it myself. So from there, I basically said, you know what, why don't you just get a professional qualification of some sort? So I went on and studied physiotherapy. Um, so that's a, been an area of interest since, you know, I finished my physiotherapy degree throughout that time. I worked as a personal trainer for a while. I, you know, did, did loads of courses as a personal trainer, including, I suppose, the, the RTS courses, which are yep. relevant for today's discussion. Um, and also, you know, went on then to eventually uh, study medicine, which is, which is what I'm doing at the moment, but more relevant to the people listening to this podcast. You know, I have my own business triage method with with Paddy Farrell, the co-owner of that business. And, you know, we're basically interested in, in trainer education. And part of that is obviously um, digging down into, you know, what makes exercise exercise and how we make exercise decisions. So, so that's why I'm here talking to you. Absolutely. And I was, I was going to ask, had you done the RTS module before? And I, I kind of presumed mm -hmm. that you'd had done. I think that is something that I think any exercise professional who is trying to look to upskill in the world of exercise mechanics and i know that we're going to talk about it a lot today and just a few minutes ago when we were talking before it is difficult to try and give it all over a podcast and it is very visual and seeing lines of force etc these kind of things is going to be very visual so if anyone is listening definitely try to get down to um over to integra um, and see yeah. michael gooden over there and i, I was actually on um uh, the education portal for the, the muscle mentors did a uh, uh, exercise mechanics with him over the week and uh, it was quite good actually it was an interesting Unreal. one yeah what did you what did you make of the rts module itself fantastic you know i yeah. resistance training specialist practical courses are um, what I always recommend to trainers just because I really like um, in all subjects that that I try that I try to study and get an interest in I really like kind of trying to bring things back to first principles and understanding like 
what are the active ingredients in what we're talking about. And for me, like if you think about, um, let's say if you're, if you're a doctor, right. And you're prescribing a drug, you want to know what the drug targets are. You know, you want to know, okay, what, what receptors is this drug going to interact with? How long is this drug going to be in the body? What sort of side effects is it going to have? How does it interact with other drugs in the body? So you want to know all of those things from the perspective of pharmacology. And as an exercise professional, we kind of have a similar responsibility. So if I prescribe exercise, I want to know what the targets of the exercise are. I want to know, you know, what, what, where the forces are being distributed in that exercise. And I want to know, you know, how does it interact with other exercises in your program? So it's a similar sort of philosophy. And that's why I think having an understanding of exercise mechanics, which which for me, like it also starts with understanding anatomy. Um, I think that's that's key um, and, and, and is a key skill for any exercise professional, whether they be uh, clinical in terms of physiotherapy or you know on the ground as a as a personal trainer working with the general population. So so yeah, yeah, very. I think it is very important and something that I never really, never really understood in my my early years and only starting to kind of even just hear murmurs of RTS and what is a resistance profile? What is a strength profile? What, what is exercise mechanics? And I think that breaking that down when you think that, that I think that most people say, talk about this is when you pick 10 kilos off the floor it's go, and, and drop it, it's going to be more due to velocity, et cetera. It's going to be heavier when it hits the ground. If you just place it on the floor, I think that that's actually what Michael talked about in the, in the um, lecture that I was just listened to, if you place a, a 10 kilo dumbbell on your toes really carefully, or else if you dropped it from 10 feet, it's going <laughs> to hurt a lot more if you drop it from 10 feet. And all these kind of things, when you start to understand and learn about them and, and integrate them into your own training and training with clients for any coaches out there, it really does start to have that profound effect and really trying to match everything um, in terms of how the body's supposed to move. Um, so pretty much just a little bit of a, let's just try and define exercise mechanics. I know it's um, hard to do so, or kind of an introduction to exercise mechanics. What exactly is it and, and why is it so important? Yeah, so like I would just have a simple de de definition that basically when we talk about exercise mechanics or you could say exercise physics or exercise biomechanics, whatever you want to call it, um, basically what we're talking about is the study of the application of forces to a biological system. And I always think that's really important because if you don't include the biological system component you can start to make some you know maybe false conclusions about what you know the mechanical study actually leads to in the human body because that's fundamentally what exercise is exercise is the specific application of force to the body um, that is leading to some sort of adaptation that's what we hope for we hope that it's going to drive some sort of positive adaptation but we also always acknowledge that there's the potential for um you could say maladaptive adaptation or simply degradation that you know if you apply exercise inappropriately if i say to you josh okay josh you've been on lockdown over in melbourne and what i want you to do now is go into the gym in your first session back and i want you to do 20 sets of 10 back squats all to failure like that's me applying a certain uh, unit of force to your body that you're unlikely to be able to tolerate and that has the potential to lead to probably not positive adaptation, but rather some sort of degradation or injury or breakdown um, of the tissues involved, you know? So that's, that's why exercise is important or exercise mechanics is important is because it gives us a lens through which we can analyze what we're applying um, to, to the human body. And, and it starts at really basic levels. And for me, before you start to, to worry about, um, 
about lines of force and resistance profiles and, you know, really getting into the nuances of all that sort of stuff, you need to understand your anatomy. And I think that is just incredibly important and something that's often, um, often missed uh, by personal trainers, I think. Um, and by, you know, people who talk about exercise a lot of the time, you'll hear people discuss um, what muscles are worked during an exercise or what muscles are being stretched during a stretch or whatever it happens to be. And you can see that the knowledge of, of basic anatomy is, is lacking. And for me, like that's a, that's a fundamental subject of interest for the personal trainer because you need, to know, you need to know what's on the dartboard before you throw the dart. And that's the way I analogize it is that, you know, if you know what's on the dartboard, you know all the scores, you know where the trebles are, you know where the doubles are. That's akin to knowing where all your muscles are, knowing what muscles are there at a given joint, knowing what movements they're likely to produce, et cetera. And then you can start to break down from first principles what exercises are likely to be working. So, for example, we no longer just say that, um, oh, you know, you just you, you squat if you if you want to have big legs. You know, that's a fine sound bite that you can pass on in the gym to people who maybe are not studious as it relates to this stuff. You know, everyone, everyone in the gym every day, you don't expect everyone to know all their anatomy. So I know for, for most people walking into a gym, if they're like, yeah, squats actually work the legs, that's fine. That's good knowledge for you. But if you're a personal trainer, you're trying to be more specific. So you're trying to, to say, okay, what, what are the legs? Like what are in the legs? Okay, you've got your quadriceps. What do the quadriceps do? Where do they attach? You know, how does that, um, how does that drive their function? And then you say, okay, so the quadriceps, um, they extend the knee and, and one of them flexes the hips. So if I know that, if I know that knee extension is the main function of the quadriceps, then I now know that anything that applies force against knee extension or creates a knee flexion moment, that that is going to be able to train the quadriceps. And now from there, I've got this first principles knowledge from which I can derive many, many different types of exercises. So it's no longer just um, quads equals uh, squats, leg press lunges. I now know that, hey, you know, if I've got a client and they're struggling with balance or whatever, or they've got hip pain, we can actually still go ahead and, and train the quads to their potential by just doing loads of leg extensions because I know that I can apply a force against knee extension and that I can get my client to do a lot of work uh, within that context. So, so that, that, that for me is, is why exercise mechanics is important and, and why you should be starting to think about this stuff if you want to be the best trainer you can. Yeah, I think that's actually a really, really nice analogy with the dartboard. Yeah. And only until I kind of understood, actually, when you, when you talked about anatomy and understanding insertions, origins, et cetera, and, and I know the main one for me was kind of pec, and I always found it very, very difficult to contract my pec. And I remember someone told me, like, the origin insertion, if you can simply try to think of moving those closer together, putting it into a shorter range or trying to contract it, that will help. And even just even with the bicep or or any delt work or quad work, like you said. Um, if you really think about that, what was that, that phrase you used, the primary, primary focus? Um, what did I say? Um, that it, that, that it was, or the primary function, the primary function. Primary function, of the yeah. Primary yeah. function or focus in that kind of um, internal kind of uh, mind to muscle th thought process of it. If you can just think about that, you can connect with it so much more. And just by understanding how it's actually working and then not just saying, I'm going to do a squat. If I do the squat, I'm going to get big legs where it's so much more than that. And, or like a leg extension, simply by just doing a leg extension, isn't going to get you big quadriceps. It's, it's by being able to connect with it, reduce inertia and reduce momentum, and actually contracting the tissue across the contractile range exquisitely well. And 
that just comes with experience as well and, and just understanding. I think the main thing was just understanding how muscles actually contract because if you don't know that, you're never going to be able to actually do that when you get into the gym. Yeah, and I, and I do think, like you said, you know, the, that the knowledge itself can actually be um, empowering because like that, mm. like that case with, you know, your chest, you said that having the knowledge that the pec uh, originates here and inserts there, that that actually improved your ability to then connect with that muscle. And I think as a trainer, I think it's important to realize like that while, while knowledge can be powerful, you also need to know what amount of knowledge is appropriate because you don't want to start relaying all this stuff onto your clients on day one, because that's what, that's what some people do. You know, they'll, they'll go to a new course and they'll, they'll learn new information and then they want to tell their clients all about it on Monday morning. Whereas their client is like, here, man, I'm going to work in 45 minutes. I'm just here to to get my workout in, you know, like, so I don't, I don't care what, about yeah, the yeah. biceps, long head versus short head. Like, like, I don't need to hear this, you know? Yeah. Um, so knowing, knowing what is appropriate uh, for your client is important, you know, and it can, it can, yeah. it can definitely help from an internal focus perspective, like you said, to know where uh, different muscles uh, attach. So for example, if you're talking about the hamstrings, let's say the fact that the hamstrings are biarticular or most of them are that they cross the knee and the hip, then when we sit into a leg curl, let's say a seated leg curl, and if I want my client to get their hamstring into a stretched position, like if that's where we're trying to work into more of a lengthened position, then I know that if they're kind of posteriorly tilting their pelvis and they're kind of rounding their back under as they get to the top, that that's actually not allowing that hamstring to get into its fully lengthened yeah. position or, or, or vice versa. If you're talking about a lying leg curl, if you're trying to get the hamstring into a shortened position, you're trying to give that person that internal feeling of here is your hamstring working. This is where it is. This is what it feels like. And you see that their pelvis is, is tilting anteriorly. They're lifting up their ass and they're kind of swinging into the shortened position. Then you again can, can reason from first principles that that is actually changing the hamstrings muscle length and thus is going to change the exercise experience that comes out the other end of that. So, you know, again, it's about knowing what's appropriate because again, like it could, it could be the case that you have a client that, you know, they feel like everything works just fine. You give them their exercise program on day one and they start getting results and they say, yeah, I've got no pain. All these exercises feel great. And they don't know a single ounce of anatomy. They don't know why they're doing the exercise that they're doing, but they're still getting the outcomes that they yeah. care about. So, you know, you, you have to tailor what you really on to your clients, um, depending on what they need. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, it's the case of just trying to dumb it down and trying to create as, as easy as understand. Like you don't want to say if we're trying to um, work the pec, like adduction across the body with the humerus or something to a six-year-old client who is literally first day in a gym. Do you know what that's? Yeah, they don't care. If I said that to my dad, or actually <laughs> my matter. dad would probably know, but um, if I said that to anyone who's in that kind of age group, it doesn't matter. Just drive the arm across the body. As long as you know what's, why it's happening or what's, what's actually happening internally in the body. It doesn't matter what, what cues you use, make it as, as easy as and applicable as possible for sure. So yeah, running in, running into um, strengthening resistance profile. So a bit of a, I think to be honest, it's a bit of a buzzword and people are talking about it all the time, but it, it does have a lot of meaning and it does have, if you can actually a nice phrase that um, I took from Michael was complementary profiles and matching it up so that, um, the resistance profile matches the strength profile. And I think I see some people talk about that and then the exercise they're doing just doesn't make any sense the way they're doing it. So I'd love to try and get a, um, or a bit of an intro into what is a resistance profile? What is the strength profile and how can we 
adapt and manipulate and let's a couple of exercise examples potentially um to have that uh, complementary profile yeah like to give to give a very simple introduction to, to what we're talking about here the strength po- profile can be thought of very simply as what you can do and the resistance profile can be thought of very simply as like what the exercise is is bringing back against you effectively so an example of that 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 people would would probably be aware of would be um, if we if we talk about the the strength profile first and foremost, generally when a muscle is in its its most shortened position, um, your capacity to produce force is going to be reduced. So, for example, at the top of a leg extension, if you're doing a leg extension exercise and your knee is fully extended and your hip is also flexed, then you're generally going to be a bit weaker in that position. It's going to be more difficult for you for you to produce uh, lots of force. So, if you're doing uh, an exercise, then that gets heaviest in the top position. So if you're doing a leg extension that happens to get heavier in the top position, which some of them do, unfortunately, then you might feel like you're doing very little at the bottom and then you're doing loads of work at the top. And as a result, if you're saying, okay, I'm going to cut the set off when I hit failure and my failure is going to be measured by not being able to get to the top of the rep, then the result, the outcome of that is that you might actually just be cutting the stimulus short um, because you know you couldn't finish the top of the rep, but you actually had so much work left to do in the bottom uh, 60 degrees, let's say, of that range of motion. It was just the 30 degrees that you couldn't do. Whereas yeah. if you had a leg extension that was designed in such a way that it was actually a bit heavier, heavier at the bottom or heavier in the middle, preferably, and then it actually started to drop off a bit at the top, or if you have a personal trainer with you who's going to be maybe taking a little bit of resistance off at the top, they're going to spot you just a little bit because they know where the machine is heaviest, then as a result, you can actually begin to do more quality work throughout the range of motion without being limited by that top position. So that's where this does start to become a little bit more important. And we can start to then kind of look at different exercises with with that kind of approach of thinking, okay, what can I do versus what is the exercise providing? You can start to look at different exercises and kind of say, okay, that's probably not the best exercise. You know, for example, if you're doing a a dumbbell chest fly, let's say, a dumbbell chest fly gets really, really hard down the bottom and there's ba- you're basically doing no work uh, at the, the top. So if, you're, so if you're coming up to the shortened position and the dumbbells are up above you, because they're resting right above your shoulder joint and the load is going straight down through your arms, which are up above you, there's no work being done up there. So you know if you did want to, to use that exercise, then what you would say is that I'm, I'm going to spend more time maybe closer to the bottom and the middle and I'm not going to spend a lot of time up the top because that's just, there's no benefit fit there you know so if you were moved if you were going into the top and really squeezing your chest in the top position there's not really any load acting back the back against you whereas if you were doing a cable version of that same exercise then the cable version depending on how you set up the cables themselves there's actually going to be quite a bit of resistance in the shortened position so you could set up that exercise with cables where there's resistance at every point in the range of motion as opposed to just the bottom part of the exercise being the limiting factor and where that becomes particularly important is in cases where you have clients where the limitation to their performance is not just the muscle itself, but is rather the presence of some sort of pain, for example. So if you've got someone who has a history of shoulder pain and they're doing dumbbell chest flies, then the resistance is greatest down in the bottom position uh, where the muscle is stretched, where the weight is really far from the joint axis. 
And if they're getting, you know, pain in that position, then it's very likely that that's going to be the limiting factor to them performing the exercise rather than their chest muscles. Whereas if you were to actually do a cable version of the exercise, it would mean that you could actually create a drop off in resistance down in that bottom position. And you could have more resistance in the shortened position, maybe where it's not as aggravating on the shoulder. So there are just some examples of where this starts to come into play. Yeah, I think I think cables just provide such a good challenge, like for stuff like that. And um, I think yeah. that <clears throat> people always get a, a kind of, um, and I probably did back in the day as well. Just barbells, dumbbells, cables are stupid, machines are stupid. Like yeah. they don't give you as much of a challenge. I think it's just something that's built into us over the years, and just watching maybe people train and stuff like that. But then we actually, when you really break it down, probably even more applicable that they have a a greater challenge just like with the cable i think that's always a nice example and um, we're the same with like a, a cuff ladder raise um yeah is a big one there at the moment and and rightly so because in the bottom position then in the length of position of, of dumbbell when the hands are let's say down by the pockets we have no resistance there at all and the further we come up then we gain resistance but then obviously we're extremely weak up there so our strength profile is is very weak up the top and then the resistance is as heavier so it doesn't really make much sense by doing that so something like a lining up a, a cuff ladder raise where we have the resistance kind of almost working slightly across the body will be, will allow a challenge in that length and range still which is a nice way to think of it as well yeah absolutely and and like for me like i'm still i'm still completely cool with someone like doing a dumbbell lateral raise and that's oh, yeah. i suppose like the thing the thing the thing that's important here is that when you get into thinking about exercise mechanics and thinking about how you can create the best exercises and stuff, it's important not to get too led astray to thinking every exercise needs to be perfect all the time, because I think that can potentially compromise adherence at times. And I fall into this trap myself. Um, but if you think about like trying to optimize, let's say, if we're using that thought process of, oh, I want there to be resistance uh, that's equally challenging at every point in the range, depending on the specific joint we're looking at, specific muscles, etc., then you end up, you know, doing, you're using cuffs on lots of things, you're doing lots of cable exercise, maybe you're adding lots of bands and daisy chains and lots of accessories to your training. And that's fine for you as a trainer, cool. But if you're giving that to your client, and then they're finishing up with you in three months and they want to go train on their own. Suddenly they're going into the gym with this big, big gear bag of stuff. They need to spend 20 extra minutes in their workout trying to set everything up. And that, that for me, I'm thinking like, Hmm, I don't know where the longevity lies in that. So yeah. I always think about this stuff in terms of a, a needs analysis basis. So for example, if I have a client who they're doing some dumbbell lateral raises and it's all fine, you know, they're getting a great stimulus on the shoulders. I have no reason to believe that they need to, you know, start going, setting up um, cuffs and cables and everything if it's not accessible in their gym or whatever. But then one day they start to say, you know, in the top position, my shoulder's at me at the moment and it's, it's dumbbell lateral raises. It's reproducible. Every time I do them and the weight's heaviest at the top, I find that my shoulder's at me. In that case, I might say, okay, I want you to be able to keep training the shoulder. So why don't we move over to cables, give that a shot, see how that feels. And because we can allow there to be a bit more of a drop off in the top position because the resistance profile is different then that might actually allow that person to keep on training and keep on getting that stimulus um, without pain being the limiting factor. So I think that's where it can become particularly important for trainers Um, because I don't think it's the case that, you know, you need to make every exercise perfect. Um, I think that's, that's, that's fine in some cases, but I think it's futile in terms of trying to get every one of your clients to do that and especially expect them to do that long-term, particularly when it's hard to justify 
that it's actually worth it from the perspective of their actual goals. So for example, if someone's coming in and they're saying, you know, I want to lose a bit of body fat. I want to, you know, I want to gain a bit of muscle. I want to shape up or whatever, you know, you don't necessarily need to have every exercise perfect to achieve those goals. Um, so for me, I like to view it as, as kind of like a toolbox where if my client is in pain, if my client is not feeling a particular muscle working or we're seeing that the development in some muscles is not as good as others and their mind to muscle connection is poorer on certain exercises or whatever, that's when I really start to delve into more of the details and start to fine tune the exercises for them, you know? Yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree with you more on that. And I think that's some sometimes. And I was having this conversation with um, one of my good co- uh, friends and colleagues, or used to be colleague Adam, um, the other day, and we were talking about the resi- or, um, exercise ex- not ex- not not exercise execution. What am I trying to say here? Um, exercise mechanics. Excuse me. And I think that some sometimes a lot of people get too hung up on making everything absolutely perfect and the resistance profiles and strength profiles and the machines and just the setup like you said it could take 20 minutes to set the bloody thing up and you've, if you have someone coming in for a 30 or 45 minute session they don't have time to do that you know especially if they're trained by themselves but even in the session th- themselves you might get three exercises done and then the client doesn't come in for his, or their monday morning session and they're gone you never see them again so i think that exactly like you said i couldn't agree with you more it's knowing the fundamentals but not over 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 applying especially again depends on on what level the client is at or what level you guys are at at, at your training and to manipulate where it needs to be but sometimes like you said just picking up a dumbbell and pressing it isn't going to be just because there's a drop off in the in the shortened position in a a chest press or something it's it's not a it doesn't make it a bad movement and there is no good or bad movements they all have a place but just noting where we can having the knowledge to tweak them if needs be um due to needs analysis think is really really important 100 percent. yeah it, it is really important because like this is the thing with with being a personal trainer what we often try to do as personal trainers is to make ourselves stand out and that can that pursuit of yeah. trying to stand out and being in an individual particularly if you're you know marketing yourself on social media it can actually make it so that your content and the way that you um, carry yourself is actually less accessible to the general population. And the unfortunate reality is that the vast majority of people do no exercise. Okay. Most people don't train. Most people do no training. You know, that, that that's the reality of the situation. And if you want to have an impact on a kind of a broader public health level, and we want more people to train and we want more people to actually start getting the positive adaptations from exercise, like, making putting more barriers in place in terms of you know having everyone you know use bands and all that sort of stuff on every exercise or only only using certain machines that are better than other machines and everything i think that can be a bit of a problem um i and and it's something again that i I would say that i i have fallen into in the past is trying to be too much of a a perfectionist in the way that i promote exercise or in the way that i you know tell people that they should exercise and that even includes coming down to things like basic exercise technique you know for example if someone if someone is doing some sort of bench press and it doesn't look perfect to me i'm like okay i have to weigh up the pros and cons of actually saying whether or not that is a problem because the reality is that most people don't bench press and more more people bench pressing would be good for their sarcopenia risk long term for example for the maintenance of good health long term that people should be training and that there are trade-offs with not training so when we're trying to get people into exercising like doing something is almost always better than doing nothing and if someone does uh, if someone goes into the gym and they do loads of dumbbell chest flies and i'm like yeah there's probably better ways of doing that or whatever i'm like 
okay, you're still training. You're yeah. still doing better than the vast majority of the population. So appreciating the good in that before being a perfectionist and putting up too many barriers is really important as a trainer. 100%. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's what she nailed the head on, nailed on the head there for sure. It's, it's trying to, again, like you said, not be that complete perfectionist and having this. And I, I, can, I can relate to you on that one in terms of setting up something for, for a client like a, the other day, for instance, I had one, a, couple, one, a client or two on a heel elevated Smith machine squat and then just couldn't get the setup correct and was getting too much knee flexion. The, the, the feet were too far behind us and too far and forward. And I go, just scratch, just get rid of those, those, uh, those plates yeah. under your heel or get rid of it. Just, just squat normally. There's no, it doesn't make it a bad exercise, but then almost yeah. sometimes that they feel then, okay, this isn't as good of an exercise as before. So for any coaches who are out there, simple done, um, done well is, is going to be better than the really, really perfect exercise that never gets off the page that, that it's written on, do you know? Yeah, like I completely agree. I mean, like I've, I found that in my own training as well. Like there are some, sometimes I'll go to a gym where I have access to, you know, really good machines where you feel like every fiber in the muscle being challenged is lit up throughout, you know, it's like, oh, throughout this exercise, it's lit up, it feels fantastic. But I mean, sometimes then you, you get so obsessed with that feeling that you're like, all right, I'm going to wait around now till that machine's free. And it's 10 minutes later and you're like, okay, the machine's still not free or whatever. And then you move gyms and you're like, oh, I don't have access to that machine anymore. Like, how am I going to train? Oh, damn it. God, you know, I want that feeling back or whatever. And the reality is that like, in terms of adaptations, like, can I really say that that, let's say it was a perfect feeling pull down machine. Like it just felt so good. Is there going to be like that much of a significant difference for someone like me, who's like not a professional bodybuilder or anything? Is there that much of a difference between that and me doing like weighted chin-ups that I need to, you know, be upset that that machine is not available? Like, no, you know, the reality is that you can still build muscle without exercises feeling like they're perfect or the machine has been perfectly designed or whatever. And, and yeah, while, while I'm a big fan of machines and I think that there are certainly a hierarchy in terms of some machines being better than others, um, just recognizing that like basic stuff still works really well a lot of the time and that, you know, having the more advanced or technical stuff in your toolbox is useful. I think that's, that's a good way of thinking about things. Yeah. hundred percent. Something like a, you jump into like an Eagle row is it an Eagle row by Cybex or something like that. Yeah, and the then Cybex, just, Cybex yeah. Eagle seat or draw. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're waiting there for, for ages when you're just, just pick up a dumbbell and do a single arm row. If, if you're really stuck or a, a seated cable row on a, on the machine yeah. or something, you know, and I think, I think you nailed, nailed on the head there again, just not getting completely zoned into now potentially you could get that extra 1%, but like you said, yeah. with the general pop and the coaches and myself and yourself who aren't competing or, or anything like that, um, it's not really as applicable. So um, in terms of active and passive ranges of motion, just wanted to run through that a bit. And sometimes you talk about a lot and, um, and with clients is trying to assess active and passive range of motion. What, what do these terms mean to you? Yeah, so like when you talk about like range of motion, Basically, the, when you say, when you call something an active range of motion, what you're mainly referring to is your ability to pull to basically get yourself into a given position without being forced there by external loads. So I can use my own muscles to move into that position. So 
for example if it's a if it's a bench press that i can i can put my hands down towards my chest already as if i'm holding a bar um without the bar forcing me there um and where and, and the passive passive range then would be if i took your hand josh and i just shoved your hand down um and pushed it further behind your shoulder or whatever so that's basically what you're talking about when you talk about a, an active and passive range of motion and and basically the more you move into your passive range the more you're lengthening everything out including the muscle including the connective tissue and and you're obviously pushing the joint into a greater range of motion maybe working more muscles maybe bringing in um more internal or external rotation depending on the joint that you're actually looking at um but that's that's fundamentally the difference it's i can get there versus someone can push me there and like for me again this is one of those things that comes up a lot when you're discussing um exercise mechanics and like initially like when if you were to discuss this with me uh years ago i would have turned around and said to you you know oh it's really important that you know we always try to stay in our active range and, and all that sort of stuff but the, the reality i think for me at this point is that when i think about range of motion as it relates to exercise i often come back to thinking about again that kind of needs analysis basis so if a client comes into me and they're doing a dumbbell chest press or whatever um, and they're coming down they're coming down nice and low they're bringing the dumbbells towards their chest or whatever and they're like yep my chest is absolutely lit up it feels great I've got no shoulder pain getting everything I want out of the exercise like even if I was to say okay let me see what you can get to without the dumbbells and they can't necessarily go that far and they're working into their uh, quote-unquote passive range of motion um, I'm not worried about that. Like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna change that for that person. Where it becomes more important, from my perspective, is that if someone has some sort of injury or pain or obvious restriction, that I then t start to take that into consideration. Um, and this is something that I go through in, in the in the coach's corner, which is our our member site. Shameless plug. Um, that's something that I go through on there is like taking you through what it looks like at different joints, what restrictions could potentially be there. So, for example, if you've got a client that's coming in and they've got um, a history of uh, right shoulder osteoarthritis and they've got a restriction in range of motion in that right shoulder and when they're coming down on their bench press the left shoulder is very freely movable it's going all the way down but then the right shoulder they can only bring it all the way down to touch their chest when um, when there's enough Heavy load on there to, sh to shove it there effectively like that for me is more is more of one of those cases where hey you know why don't we actually maybe reduce the range of motion and just stick with what you have available at the right shoulder maybe we could still do another exercise for the left shoulder but i wouldn't be trying to force someone into a range that they're not able to get to in their everyday life particularly if there's pain associated with that um, so that's where the kind of arbitrary notions of just going full range of motion uh, becomes you know they, they they can become a bit harmful at times you know if you've got someone on a leg press for example and they've got you know hip osteoarthritis on one side and they've got pain when they get into deep hip flexion and you're saying you know oh you don't you need to go down as deep as possible that's where that thing can become um, more of a problem you know um, if someone is if you're just saying getting someone into the leg press and saying all right you know they're perfectly healthy uh, go down as low as low as is comfortable try to keep your your back on the mat on the pad or whatever of the seat and they go down nice and low for you do you need to go and assess every individual joint involved in that to see if it's active or passive or whatever i don't think so um, i don't think there's much to that um but yeah they'd be some of, some of my initial thoughts on, on that because i know where you're coming from when you ask the question of active and passive range of motion <laughs> other people who are coming from a different perspective like from my physiotherapy background let's say generally we talk about active and passive range of motion you assess both of those things to see you know 
differentiate between different types of injuries and strength, et cetera. But, but yeah, there you go. Yeah. Those are the two, two main ones. I think that p- people really bring up is that bench press and, and, and leg press. And I think I, I just know from myself over the years, like I would have lo- loved to be a fly in the wall for my first couple of years training, like just doing no warm ups, walking in barbell on the back, two twenties each side, two twenties each side, just hammering myself. And my the the hip flexion I can get is so poor now. I can't even describe it. It's so bad. I've done so much work on it over the years. Try get it better, but the active range of motion I have in my hip, just in a leg press, let's say for example, is quite poor. So learning about this was very important for me to make sure that. And I was always saying that, like, why why am I getting lower back pain? Because once I get to that excessive, I wouldn't even call it excessive hip flexion, but some what level of hip flexion, and I try and go full range of motion, i.e. like yeah. chest into or knees into my chest, then we have that kind of uh, hip stiffen off the pad and loads of tension run through my lower back. So I think assessing these kind of things, especially if you are getting pain, like what, why, you always have to ask, why are you getting pain there? Why is there pain coming from that exercise? And then breaking it down, can we change it a little bit? And the same with the bench press, like that, thought process full range motion or ass to grass or the bar has to touch the chest on the on the bench press is is complete uh, each every for some people yes that's the case obviously but i think for for a lot of people the bar doesn't have to touch the chest right i can't get into that that range again just hammering my shoulders my front delts over the years doesn't allow me to get into that range so i think assessing these and being conscious of them is very important from an, an injury perspective an injury reduction perspective i think yeah, I think it can be important at times. Like it is something I've probably changed my perspective on over the years. I definitely used to be more of a a movement conservative, you could say, in terms of in terms of thinking that, you know, I needed to make sure that people didn't go into excessive ranges and that sort yeah. of thing. Whereas I've probably probably moved moved out of, out of that a little bit and probably am more of an optimist in terms of like I think like the vast majority of, of cases, like people are probably going to be able to come down and, and touch their chest on a bench press if you if you have if you modify some things like for example if you've got your shoulder out in 90 degrees of abduction it's unlikely you're going to be able to, to come down and touch the chest comfortably like it's it's just not yeah. that nice a lot of the time um but if you know if, if you tuck the elbows a little bit and someone is able to get an arch in their back and you know they've got a big rib cage or whatever and they're able to pinch the shoulders back it's going to be easier for that person to come down and and, and to touch the chest then so you know it, it is about considering the individual individual in front of you because if someone comes in and you know they they can't even pinch their shoulder blades back and when they come down they're real flat on the bench they can't even create an arch in their back and they're coming down to touch the chest and they're saying oh my shoulders are hurting like telling that person to keep touching their chest even though they're saying they're getting all this feedback saying this hurts me like not modifying the range of motion in that case is 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 pretty silly if you're just stuck to the yeah. idea that oh it needs to be full range of motion um because you know while there's while there's certainly advantages to not cutting the range of motion too short that doesn't mean that more is always better uh, particularly on an individual basis because people are built differently as well and that's something that's that's probably missed a lot of the time because sometimes what you'll see is you'll have people who are like you know men who are 110 kilos at five foot six and you know they're built like chinese weightlifters with short little short little legs and big long torsos and they're telling others that they should squat in the same way that they do like very upright ass to grass and it just doesn't like well while most people are going to be able to you know get somewhat of a deep squat it's not going to look the same for everyone and expecting it to look the same for everyone is ridiculous because people are built differently and 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 that's exercise and that's being a personal trainer is finding a way that you can get the individual client 
to train their muscles uh, with their body type, you know, because I've had clients over the years who, you know, squatting, uh, doing a barbell back squat was just never a quad exercise for them. It was never a great, great quad exercise for them. For me personally, like my adductors and my glutes are always, always what gets sore after squatting. They're always going to be the limiting factors um, and primarily my adductors, to be honest, um, as opposed to my quads. Whereas if I do something like a leg extension or if I get into a good hack squat machine or something like that, I'll get far more of a stimulus on my quads from that. So if I was to just take the kind of generic advice from someone who's saying, oh, you know, squats are the best leg exercise for building up your quads, then that might actually serve me the best, you know? So, so yeah, um, personal training is, is supposed to be personal. Yeah, I think that that's probably the, the biggest key I think anyone can take from this this chat is that it is so individualized and having that kind of one size definitely does not fit all approach. And, and it took me a couple of years um, to really understand that. Note that different people need, it isn't just a copy and paste of a program and then it isn't a copy and paste of cues. And even from a cueing perspective, some people will react better to some sort of cues. Some people react better to internal or external cues and different setups on the, the machines or different setups on the a piece of equipment that you're using. I think that breaking it down and that's what makes a really good coach in my view is to completely um, individualize every exercise for the, for the client to hand. So I think that that's, that's probably the most important thing that anyone can take from this is just, it has to be so individualized for yourself. Some people will get a huge quad activation um, from a squat, but for yourself or really myself as well, I didn't, I'd be the same as you um, in terms of where we're feeling it and from a hacker, a leg extension perspective, what's, there's no better way, I think, in my view, to hit a quad than a leg extension. I think that a lot of people will say, oh, it's an awful exercise. It's really bad. Do it as a finisher towards the end. Or the amount of output you can get into the quad by slamming into a leg, leg extension, as we know, is definitely uh, advantageous for sure. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. So, yeah. Um, jumping into uh, so machine analysis, I know that we're gonna. I know we've kind of touched on this um, briefly as to it. Just again, there's nothing. There's nothing wrong with picking up a dumbbell and doing a chest fly and things like this. So I think we've we've kind of answered that. But is there anything that you look for in a machine? So when you kind of eye up a machine, let's say like the eagle um, seated row, the sidebox eagle row, and what are the variables that you look for in a machine that you can say that looks that looks like it's bang on for me? Yeah, so it, it's, it totally depends on the type of machine. I suppose first things first, for people coming into this conversation who are like, machines, bro, like why, why would I want to do machines? You know, when I could do barbells and free weights. Like machines can be fantastic for many, many, many reasons. And, you know, one of them being that a good machine will generally reduce the amount of other muscles that are working uh, during the exercise. So for example, if you're doing a barbell row, then one of the, th like you have to do a lot within that exercise before you even begin to use your lats or your upper back muscles to begin rowing because your hip extensors have to do quite a bit of work. So if you've already done gluten hamstring work, then they might be fatigued and they might become a limiting factor. They're contributing to the overall fatigue experience during the exercise. Um, similarly, your lower back, if your lower back has been worked already during deadlifts previously, then again, in a barbell row, that lower back may become the limiting factor. And while local fatigue in the specific muscle that you're trying to target is a limiting factor in exercise, so is exercise or fatigue more systemically in that if you're already fatigued systemically, then that changes 
your overall perception um, from a nervous system perspective of how fatigued you are and how likely you are to quit or hit failure or whatever. So, so that, that's important because, you know, if you're doing a, a barbell row and you're saying, oh, my lower back is always what gives up first, then that means that you're not taking your shoulder extensors, so your lats, your teres major, all the muscles in the upper back, that you're not taking them close to failure and thus you're unlikely to get the same outcomes in those muscles. So if you move over to something like a machine, let's say like a, some sort of chest supported row variation. So firstly, what you're looking for, if you're doing a row, for example, is that you've got the, a form of restraint or stability in the form of the, the support of the chest. So if you've got a pad along the front of your chest, effectively what that does is it allows you to brace against that pad. So now when I pull, um, when, I, when I'm doing some sort of row, my because my as I pull, I'm being pulled forward into the pad that's in front of me. My lower back now has to do very little. You know, I'm also sitting on a seat. Um, my glutes, my hamstrings have have to do very very little. They're basically just passive. And now I can put all of my attention and all of my energy into what my shoulder extensors are doing as I pull. Okay. So if we were to keep, stick with the rowing example, that chest support is something that's always desirable. Similarly, like what I will look for is you know what sort of grip options do I have available. So if I'm doing some sort of row and I'm trying to challenge my lats, for example, I'll typically look for a more neutral grip or a grip that is freely movable. So for example, if you've got a thumbs up grip up in front, up in front of you, that's generally going to allow the lats to work a bit better because your shoulder is going to be maintained uh, closer to the body as opposed to being out in an abducted position where your elbows are higher. If your elbows are higher, that's typically going to reduce the amount of work that the lats are doing versus the uh, upper back musculature, you could say. Um, so if you've got that grip option available, that's desirable. But similarly, if I was trying to work the upper back more, I might be saying, okay, on this machine, I want to be able to do an overhand grip or have the option to pull my pull my elbows a little bit higher. So it does depend what you're trying to, to train. And from there, what I might say is, okay, we've got the grip available. What does the path of motion of the machine look like? So for example, if I'm rowing and as I row, the, the, the handles actually move up towards my shoulders. Like you'll feel that on some rowing movements, yeah. you kind of feel like you have to shrug up yeah. and your wrists are getting strained. And that's just kind of a, a, not a great feeling. And that could be just because you're not adjusting the seat or whatever. But in that rowing example, what I typically want is that that weight is actually coming down towards my stomach more so and closer towards the abdomen that as I pull, that's where it's coming towards so that that path of motion is actually aligning a little bit wet, better with the movement that I'm trying to replicate. So a good machine, what it will typically result in is you feeling like you're moving quote unquote naturally, that you're not being forced into any positions that you're, you're not directly trying to push into. And a, a bad machine or a worse machine will typically make you feel like you're trying to pull in one direction, but the machine is actually moving slightly in another direction. And that can lead to, you know, a bit of strain on your joints or just doesn't feel fantastic overall, or doesn't feel like you're maintaining um, the, the muscles that are, that are supposed to be working um, as, as the primary fo focus of the movement. So, so there are some of the things I would look for, you know, the, the points of stability that you're looking for totally depend on, on what you're actually what type of exercise it is. Like, obviously, if you're doing a chest press variation, then on a chest press variation, you want there to be a pad behind you that you can lie back against. Yeah. And that's very similar to the chest support. You know, if you were to think about, imagine if they took the seat off the back of a chest press and you had to just hold yourself there with your abs, that's a lot, that's a lot of the time what we're asking ourselves to do when we do something like a barbell roll. Um, it, is, it is different, to be fair. Um, 
but yeah, there are some of the, the advantages of, of machines. Like if you're doing a pull down variation, you want your feet to be, or your knees to be held stable so that you can keep those stable. And now you're actually restrained so that you can allow that your, your lats and, and your, your other pulling muscles to do as much work as possible. So, so yeah, there's, there's definitely good and bad machines, but I think from a user's perspective as a, a trainer or a trainee, you can kind of get a good feel for, you know, how a machine is designed based on what it feels like. So if you get into a machine and you're like, as I do this row, I feel like my lats are lit up throughout every inch of the range of motion. It doesn't feel like there's any part of the range that's too easy or way too hard. And I feel like I'm moving as I'm just naturally desiring to do. They're generally good signs. And I mean, you can get into the details of looking at the specifics of how the cam is built and how the cables are set up within the machine and whether they're redirected and is it a two to one or a four to one or whatever. There's loads of nuances there that you can, that you can explore. But ultimately I think like, the feeling that you get from it actually just tells you a lot without having to know all of the, the in-depth kind of the engineering stuff behind the machine, you know? Yeah. hundred percent. I think the two main things that we can take from that is stability. I talk about that so much is just, can we create a more stable environment and then line of line of force as well. And, and line of, um, what would we call it? Line of force that the, the, uh, the machine's actually moving. And like you said, for your lap, yeah, like, path, is of that motion. path of motion, sorry, is that elbow like getting directed outwards where we want to try jam it in as yeah. tight to the hip as we can. And I remember there was this uh, low road that I used before and there was no pad in front of us. So you're in this bent over position, like already kind of hips at about 45 degrees in this low row and you have nothing to brace against. So as you pull, you're, you get jolted forward and you just can't stabilize the machine. I always use that example for a chest-supported row. Um, and having something there to brace against is so important. And you can get into finer details of something like a, a tricep extension where you have like a, a kind of a cuff wrapped around pulling yeah. against the bicep or something like that. And just trying to create as much stability around that joint um, is going to be key. But then we go back to the are we just overcomplicating the exercise? Do we even have time to set that up? And all these things will definitely t- be taken into account. Yeah, that, but that's why good machines are good. It's that they, yeah. they don't need to be yeah. further customized. You know, that when you, sit, when you sit in, when you adjust it, it's, that's it. You know, you can just yeah. go to work. Like, that's what you want. You want to be able to get into whatever machine you're using and just go to work, do the work, and not have to think twice about it. And, and that's why, you know, there is some sort of hierarchy of machine design because there's nothing worse than, you know, sitting into a machine and feeling like you need to adjust it for yeah. 10 minutes before you can even get comfortable because, you know, you don't know, you know, the foot pad, you need to move that around, you need to change the seat height. And it's just, it's just not a great feeling. So, yeah. So yeah, that, that's not to say that you shouldn't need to individualize it. You should, you know, you obviously people are different sizes and everything. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that, that Paddy, um, my colleague always gives out about cause he's six foot five and he's like, these machines are not built for tall people. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Even stuff like, um, I remember there's this one kind of shoulder press, um, in one of the old gyms I used to, to work in and the, the handles were so far in front. Like it was insane. It was like, that's a very common one. 50, 50, 60 centimeters in front. And when you get someone into even, even probably further than that potentially. And it felt like you were like, when you're pressing out in front, you were like isometrically holding it like out in front of you rather than on top of you. And having to change the setup and stuff like that is just a has to be done of course because you don't want a client jumping into there where the the weight you're they're almost holding it out in front of them instead of overhead but like you said the the best machines out there means that you just sit into it pull and it, it hits the lap perfectly for that for sure 
Yeah, and that, but that's that's a that's a good point. Like there are there are machines like that that are just disasters. Like another one yeah. would be like if you're if you get into a machine like if it's a chest press or a shoulder press, and you you have no option to change how far in front the the handles yeah. actually are. So for example, if it's a shoulder press and you get in and you're you're pressing from like the nipple line, like that's just a disaster <laughs> because like yeah. even even getting to start the exercise is challenging, and then you have to yeah. set up when you're already holding the weight and everything, which is which defeats the purpose. Of, of using a machine like the, the whole point of using a machine is that you don't have to do the whole like kick up thing with the dumbbells and be throwing yeah. dumbbells around and and yeah so so yeah there's there's a hierarchy for sure yeah chest press is one as well actually when you sit into one you get get into like a hotel gym or something and you almost have to force like, yourself in like or, or else just miles in front of you and now we talk about yeah. active range but then you're pressing exactly, at about yeah. 15 centimeters and that's the lowest it gets and definitely definitely um the so what you pay for a machine is what you're going to get is probably what we can take from that. So yeah. for, for all the kind of the coaches out there, just wanted to get a little bit of a like key points that you've, you've learned over your time in the industry and any advice for any aspiring coaches out there. Yeah. So I suppose like my, my advice, like personally would be to, it's very cliche, but, but actually care about your clients results first and foremost. And I think the reason I, I say that is because it's, it's actually very easy to try and, fall into the trap of trying to impress your colleagues rather than your clients. Um, and even at that, like you're not trying to impress your clients, you're trying to make them better, make them better and make sure that when they leave you, that they're actually better off for it and that it carries forward into the future. Cause that's always the goal. You know, the goal is not to, you know, for me to go and make a post today to impress Josh and that that's my only goal. You know, the, the, the goal is not to email your client back with loads of citations and references and explanations of how the machine works and everything because that's just trying to impress them it's it's using your knowledge for the sake of flaunting your knowledge rather than using your knowledge to actually make better decisions and ha- and lead to your clients having better outcomes and i do think that that considerably changes the approach that you take to coaching um, because when i initially got into to coaching you know um, it was, you know, I'd, I'd give my clients, you know, uh, some sort of meal plan. And I thought that, you know, that was a good way of going about things. I'll give you a meal plan and maybe I'll give you some options or whatever. And, you know, or maybe I'll get you to track your calories and, and that's just it, you know, track your calories, you'll be fine. That kind of thing. Like I definitely had more of an attitude of putting it on the client to just like, oh yeah, you'll figure it out. Whereas now it's more like, okay, we need to actually make this into an approach where, I'm educating you on how to do this the best way possible. So it's no longer putting it on the client to adhere or not adhere, uh, because what that does is it actually takes ownership off you as a coach, because what you end up doing is saying that if there is failure here, it's the result of my client not being able to adhere. They weren't motivated, they weren't prepared, et cetera. Whereas if you take the ownership on yourself, now you put everything back and say, actually, if anything goes wrong, it's my fault. You know, that's your first, first, first rule of coaching is that it's your fault. Okay. Assume that all the time. So now if my clients aren't adhering, then I say, what could I have done better? How could I have better supported you? Like, what do you feel is, is wrong with the plan that you weren't able to adhere? And that fosters a really good relationship because what it does is it shows the client that they're actually not being blamed for their mistakes. And a lot of the time it actually leads to a kind of a paradoxical effect where they'll turn around and say, no, actually, Gary, you didn't do anything wrong. It's actually, here's, here's the flaws in my week. This is what I did wrong. And here's what I'm going to do to change it. So if they see you taking ownership, um, they'll often take ownership in return. And, and long-term, what that is all about is building up to the person leaving after their three, six, nine, 12 months of coaching, whatever it is, that they leave in a position where they're now able to manage things themselves. Because as we encountered problems, we worked through them. We didn't just say, 
okay, adhere next week. Try better, try better, try better, you know? Um, because if, if I had done that for 12 months with a client, let's say, and they adhered to their meal plan some weeks, some weeks they didn't adhere to it, they never really learned how to problem solve. They just kind of, it was just a case of adhere or don't adhere. Then that just leads to them failing longer term because they're not going to stick to a meal plan forever. Whereas if I actually give them the tools to problem solve, like, okay, you weren't able to eat much veg this week. What could we do differently? Are you buying fresh veg? Is that something you're finding difficult to prepare? Could you use frozen veg? How about fruit? Frozen blueberries, great option. Let's get them in. Boom. All these different strategies for people to work towards a diet that actually works for them in their schedule, given their circumstances, their budget, et cetera then we can start to prepare an approach for someone that they can leave at the end of 12 months and be like, I know what I'm supposed to do. We have designed this together collaboratively to create an approach that is designed for me to, to adhere to for the next five, 10 years, as long as my life is as it is. And I think that, that for me is what coaching is all about. And that's why I brought in those points as we, when we discussed exercise that you need to keep in, in consideration what your client is going to do longer term. So if we're obsessing about designing perfect exercises and we're doing that while our client is with us for three months or whatever, if that's not translating into them knowing what to do in the gym when they go on for the next 10 years, then I view that as at least some part of a failure uh, of my job because my job is not just while they're paying me. It's actually setting them up for the future after they've stopped paying me. So, mm. so that's, that's my philosophy of coaching anyway. Yeah. hundred percent. I think that the educative side of it and something that I used to really push on, some people will come now, some, some coaches might be saying, but I have this client who just does not care about it at all. And some, some clients who come in and, and fair play to them that just do, don't learn. They just want to get in. They have 45 minutes. It's the only time they can get away from, from work, from family. It's their time to just get in and work hard and get that, and whatever they don't want to learn about these kind of things and that, that's okay which is think, fine which is yeah, fine absolutely i think that having that thought process that you just talk about and i used to say to some clients i go after we're done here i don't want you to ever have to get a pt again i want you to be able to take this on for the rest of your life and have all the um the skills knowledge and education to be able to apply it and just and know kind of how to look at a food and say that's definitely not going to be good for me or this one i can fit this into what i'm trying to achieve for say or mm -hmm. these kind of fr fruit and veg is, is are better than these ones because they hold a nutritional value or like you said blueberries and polyphenols in here compared to this and these kind of things and that educative approach i think that seeing your clients as 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 people and rather than just seeing them as income and trying to educate them and, and put them through that kind of experience is going to stand to you long term in terms of getting referrals and people will talk about it and say i was in mcgarry um down in cork for a couple of months whatever and god just the level of detail he brought me through that the education part of it was just amazing and that speaks for itself completely agree yeah 100 yes, percent. and then last little thing we're going to ask is um i ask this to everyone is going to be the three non-negotiables um in your everyday life so what can you not live without if it's meditation if it's anything that you do on it on a day-to-day -day basis that you could not live without mm, coffee number one <laughs> <laughs> i think that's everyone's yeah, answer yeah coffee um what else ah jesus i should have thought about this before coffee i i like you say every day like it doesn't necessarily happen every day well, but it, some, it doesn't some, have to some, be every day yeah yeah some sort of training like tra training yeah. is a, a very very big part of my life and yeah. days always feel complete if i do, don't do some sort of training and i i say that in like not as someone who goes to the gym 
every day, but I mean, just, yeah. just something, you know, I do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. I, you know, do some weight training. I like going hiking. I like, you know, doing a bit of running. I just yeah. like the act of, of physically exerting myself. So that's another thing. And then some sort of, of, of reading, whether it be formal, you know, study for college or whether it be reading for leisure um, or formal learning outside of college. Like they're, they're, they're my three things. It's, it's coffee, training, reading. That's, that's me. Nice. Good trio to be fair. So listen, thanks so much for coming on and taking time. I really, really appreciate it. And that was a great chat. I think we've given some, the listeners some really good, uh, really good nuggets of information to take away there for sure. Um, and uh, would you like to tell listeners where they could find you and stuff about triage and, and all the, the products and stuff that you guys offer? Yeah, no problem. So, I mean, if you're listening to this and, and you're a trainer and you're kind of thinking, God, you know, some of that went over my head, I'd like to learn more about, you know, how, how we can think about exercise more specifically and how anatomy fits in with the exercise picture and everything. Like we do cover that on our, on our website that we have a member site called the coaches corner. Um, that's at triage method.com. Um, I'm sure Josh can link up to that anyway, but in the description. Yeah, but basically that's our member site and we educate personal trainers um, or just interested trainees um, on that site. So if you're interested in that, that could be worth doing. Um, but yeah, you can just follow at Triage Method or at Skinny Gaz on Instagram and you'll find most of what we're about. I do have, we do have our own podcast, the Triage Method podcast. Um, but, but yeah, if you follow us on social media, you'll, you'll find most of, of what, we, what we do. Yeah, I really advise everyone getting onto, onto that, uh, into the education portal or the member sites um, to try and upskill because I know that you and Paddy definitely give out some very good, very good information for sure. So thank you so much thank for coming guys. on. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it and uh, we'll, we'll see you soon. My pleasure.